Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I'm Daniel Ryan Morse, a host of the channel and an assistant professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno. Today I'm joined by Paul St. Amour, associate professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. We're here to discuss Paul's new book, Tense Future, Modernism, Total War, Encyclopedic Form, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. Many a book in literary studies oscillates unevenly between what we call theory and its objects of study. Tense future, though, is so exciting because neither of these concerns is left to wither while the other sprouts under the lamp. Instead of shuttling back and forth between the particular and the general, the book's argument is cumulative, building through a series of patient cross-pollinations. St. Amour's work, like the text it examines, defamiliarizes works we thought we knew well. It also makes some of the familiar narratives within the field of modernist studies, like that concerning the genre of the modern epic, feel strange. Tense future decouples encyclopedic form from the modern epic, for example, showing how the encyclopedia inspired interwar writers to playfully wrest totality out of the suffocating grip of total war. Paul is a ruminative thinker and meticulous writer. These traits pay dividends in the surprising insights of tense future, a book that reframes total war and literature in the interwar years and in our contemporary moment. The book's articulation of the partiality of total war, especially its focus on violence committed in the so-called periphery that denies civilians the protections of officially declared war, is all too familiar in the present. Tense Future's boldest claim, that we live in perpetual interwar, sutures the drone attacks of the present to air war theories developed after the Zeppelin raids of the First World War. Our future, though not foreclosed, is nonetheless subject to the aperture of the past. Tense future reminds us of future's past in order to pry open a little room for hope. So, Paul, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us today, and congratulations on your new book, Tense Future, uh, with Oxford University Press. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, as a, as a kind of warm-up, and thinking about the book as a whole, um, before we get into more specific issues in it, mm-hmm. um, I, was, I was struck that in a book that's so concerned with futurity, and especially with the question of of trying to imagine future without it being foreclosed, mm-hmm. right? trying to look back and not imagining what ended up happening as necessarily having to have happened, if you will. Um, So you end with an appendix that takes the form of a beginning. So in other words, your book has your chapter summaries at the very end. (laughs) And this struck me because, you know, oftentimes when you are first reading a book, you look at the chapter summaries, and and I I suppose the writer feels it could be a kind of um, contract or something. (laughs) So... um, I wanted to see if you had um, something to say about your your uh, interesting choice there. 
that was actually the result of some crowdsourcing, uh, because I had written an introduction that ended the way a lot of academic books do with the kind of, you know, paragraph by paragraph crawl through the, the chapters. And, you know, on the one hand, it's a very useful thing to have at the end of an introduction if you're just kind of coming to the book, leafing through it in a bookstore, or trying to figure out, like, which chapters are going to be the most useful, uh, given your interests. On the other hand, it's kind of a clunky practice. Uh, it means that you're ending a section of the book with a summary of chapters to come that the reader doesn't typically have enough context to appreciate fully. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did some crowdsourcing online, and uh, a couple of folks suggested just stashing it in the appendix so that it's there for people who want it, but so that the introduction could be freed up to end in a, in a more organic way without that kind of rehearsal of okay, the, sure. the six future chapters. So I wish I had a, a more uncanny story to tell about it, but it was actually a pretty practical decision. Right, right. But it seems to work well with the themes of the book. Um, <laughs> There are there are three key concepts that you kind of set forth in the introduction. So I wanted to quickly unpack those before we turn to some examples and kind of see how they play out. Great. The first is this idea of pre-trauma. So one of the things the book helps us see is the anticipation of violence or destruction. The anticipation itself can be kind of traumatic and destructive, right? Yeah. Um, you show, for example, how the airplane in Mrs. Dalloway shocks its spectators, not only because it follows on the heels of aerial bombardment in London but because it potentially signals the coming of, a, of another um, war, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we might think that literary works, and I think we often do, register the pain of the past, the attempt to work through the trauma of the past, etc. Right. But you suggest instead that interwar culture simultaneously faced both ways. Right. Yeah, well, plenty of work has been done on the legacy of the First World War and the memory of the First World War, both collective and individual, uh, in the periods that follow it. So if you think of a book like Paul Fussell's The Great War in Modern Memory, it's a book which is facing backward, um, facing the First World War, and also some of the, the decades antecedent to it. And I think that that's our habit with war, is to focus on memory and to focus in the wake of trauma studies, uh, which kind of rises in the 80s and 90s, on the ways that traumatic, mass traumatic experiences are so incommensurate with everyday life that they can't really be sort of processed or registered in real time, and so they sort of fall into the unconscious, and they cause symptoms that then uh, one works through, hopefully, right. in, in a subsequent moment or set of, set of years often. So, in a sense, you're trying to put back together and re-narrate an event that you weren't fully able to kind of comprehend um, in real time as it was happening. So, again, very much a backward-facing, chronologically backward-facing process. Mm -hmm. and, and this is Freud's model, more or less, right? Like, exactly. The trauma is inscribed and only later to be kind of revealed. Right, and sort of building on that Freudian paradigm, trauma study says that uh, until a trauma can be at least partially worked through, we will tend to repeat mm -hmm. those symptoms, okay. right? And I think that that, that um, trauma studies work did important, important things in literary studies, in thinking about the history of the Holocaust, for instance, and other mass traumatic events. But because of its disposition toward the past and toward um, traumatic legacies and memories, it doesn't really have a receptor for thinking about 
uh, or even considering the prospect that a, an event that maybe in the future might be in its own way traumatizing. Uh, Freud himself said that you actually can't undergo a traumatic neurosis if you're anxious, right? That anxiety about something that might happen to you, right, kind of uh, might be about to happen to you, kind of protects you from trauma, okay. right? And, and I'm really trying to contest that claim by thinking about how severe kinds of anxiety that are attached to future conditional events, um, and in this book that has to do primarily with, with war, mm-hmm. with violent events, and especially with aerial bombardment, which is kind of my, my primary locus here, um, can cause a kind of traumatic syndrome of their own, even in, in advance of the event. And this sounds kind of magical or something, you know, <laughs> that the idea that the future could somehow cause a wound. Mm-hmm. But this is something that was actually understood in the immediate afterworth of the, the aftermath of the First World War, when uh, in the UK, for instance, there were a number of psychological surveys of populations that had undergone aerial bombing in the First World War okay. that showed how even when raids didn't arrive, just the sound of the air raid siren could be disruptive to industrial processes, could be psychically disruptive to people and cause certain kinds of emotional trauma. Okay. Yeah. And maybe even worse, precisely because it doesn't have the kind of release at the end when the bombs actually fall, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. There's not, you know, what T.S. Eliot, I guess, might call an objective correlative, <laughs> right? Um, there's just this kind of self-replicating possibility of the future raid, or mm-hmm. if you size it up, the, the, the next war. Right. And, you know, militaries were trying to understand this so that they could actually better manipulate the injurious um, energies of uh, anticipation. Okay. Uh, and so part of the historical work of this book is to recover that kind of reconstruction of futurity from the the viewpoint of military theory in the 1920s. Okay. Uh, and to see how in that interwar period, military theorists, um, but also people working in civil defense and speculative fiction writers are all trying to get to grips with this capacity of anticipation to be a kind of wound on its own. Okay. So pre-trauma is one critical concept in the introduction to the book. Perhaps the second is the idea of critical futurity. And now, obviously, this ties intimately with, with sure. the pre-traumatic. But one of the things that, that struck me is is you use Benjamin's uh, image of the angel moving backwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> and rather than giving, and, and this is what this image means, you went back a, a whole series of potential meanings and... And kind of use that as a, as a question in a way into linking some things that haven't often been combined, which is especially queer theory and its ideas of futurity into this war context. Right. Yeah, well, Benjamin's image of the angel of history as looking only backward, right, right. as it's blown into the future with its back to the future, right, right by the sort of storm of progress. And because it's so strong, its wings are... Are sort of trapped open. Trapped, yeah, right. so it can't, it can't help anyone, and that image has been used really powerfully to evoke the ways in which one might be trapped in a backward look or might choose not to face the future. And I think in, in Benjamin's case, it's an image for his method for historical materialism. And he felt that his, historians who looked t- to the future were sort of doomed to replicate the stories of the victors, mm-hmm. right, of history's victors. And they would, even if they wanted to be... Uh, spokespeople for history's victims would end up sort of reproducing these meliorist narratives or triumphalist narratives. So that's 
well, at least the primary reason, reason that the angel of history faces backward. Okay. And Benjamin, and I guess what I wanted to do was to think about what is lost if we think of the historical materialist as only facing the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to think about how part of how history's victims suffer is by having, you know, a vision of the future as utop- as a utopia that doesn't materialize or as suffering in relation to an image of the f- uh, an injurious or foreclosed image of the future whether or not it, it arrives, right? So in a way it's uh, it's uh, this book is attempting to kind of go back into the archive and excavate some future's past okay, to right. use a term that Reinhard Kasellek uses and to think about what superseded futures might be reactivated in in a sort of politically productive way mm-hmm. and also to think about what kinds of seemingly foreclosed futures might have fostered resistant relation, relationships to futurity and not to sort of take a peek around the corner into a particular case study yeah, too yeah. early but uh uh, but, but Virginia Woolf is really my example of the latter in her late work, okay. where she, during the Blitz, is convinced that, you know, either that civilization, as it's kind of currently constituted, is about to undergo some sea change for the worse, or that she herself might not live to see the end of the war. And yet, even as the German planes are flying over her house on the way to bomb London, mm-hmm. is writing some of what I think to be her most um, insistently feminist work, um, particularly wanting to refuse a piece on the wrong terms, on a, re- on a regressive, on regressive terms, and writing against the kind of war and gender system in which women's primary job is to reproduce s- the soldiers of the future. Right. So, you know, trauma studies, I think, has a kind of rule of thumb, or, or at least a tendency to view an unforeclosed future as the precondition of ethically or politically invested work, mm-hmm. right? This, there's this idea that if the future is kind of a, a closed door, that you can't somehow feel ethically or politically invested in it. And I really want to question that and to think about the possibility that when the, the door of the future seems closed, there might be a particular impetus to refuse to open that door on regressive terms, mm-hmm. right? That there might be a particular pitch or kind of resistance that could take place um, precisely when the future appears not to be open. Right. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I think when we get into some of the examples in a little bit, we'll yeah. pry this open a little bit. Sure. But in the meantime, so the the third key concept I think is is that of weak modernism, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. So we're both in the Modernist Studies Association, and um, when we read about weak modernism, it seems like a, a wonderful possibility on the one hand. Sure. It also, I think, I think you're right. It's you claim in the book that it's meant to be descriptive, not polemical. <laughs> but you're right. You know, in, in, in modernist studies, there's this kind of phantom of well, is this object modernist or not? Right, but that's that has become way in the background of the conversation. Right, it's not really the driving force anymore. No, yeah. people aren't making lists <laughs> as much. <laughs> Maybe one way to look at it is you argued the field itself of modernist studies, right, has become stronger precisely because the term has become weaker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in one of my favorite images, you say, perhaps now it's playing host rather than bouncer. It's <laughs> <laughs> because yes, we're always in the nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do notice a theme throughout of, of musical um, oh, really? terms and thoughts, so we'll get oh. to that later. But <laughs> but this would be one, this is before you're even inside seeing the music, right? <laughs> right. 
So can you talk a little bit about Weak Modernism and what made you come come to this? Yeah, well, that was a sort of a late development, and it came out of a couple of talks I gave as I was working on the book, uh, in which I was asked during Q and A, you know, what is what are the stakes for modernism as a term and for modernist studies as a field in this project? At that time, I was still probably futzing around with the title and the subtitle, but I think the the term modernism was always in there somewhere. Okay, right. And you know, when that word is in a title, there's an expectation that you have something you know, fairly pointed to say about it. Mm-hmm. And yet I didn't want this book to turn into some kind of, uh, you know, algebraic equation whereby we now have to rethink all of modernism through the aperture of total war. Okay. And that's, I mean, there's a little bit of a, a kind of residual pressure in the field to do that kind of thing, right? To say, you know, to, to call a book something like Total War Modernism, you know, <laughs> in which all of a sudden, you know, you have this sort of new totalizing theory of modernism as a f- cultural field that is organized in relation to a, a single idea, right. right? Or at least that you're proposing to significantly reorganize in relation to that term. And, you know, this book is a bit more eclectic than that. Right. There are a number of primary texts in it that are kind of indisputably canonically modernist, there are some that are kind of nebulous that might be in a kind of hinterland, and there there are others that are that are not really I think usefully thought of in relation to modernism, and so it would have felt artificial to me to sort of claim that they were in some way modernist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I hit on that sort of bouncer versus host model <laughs> <laughs> is that I I really didn't want modernism to be a kind of gatekeeping term okay. in the project, you know, a, a term that sort of says you know. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're in. (laughs) Nope, you're out. Um, And instead to issue a kind of broad invitation to a range of cultural works without really insistently or primarily asking, but is it modernist? Which I think has become kind of a circular and unproductive question largely in the field. Mm -hmm. It tends to um, either reproduce kind of flavorless conventions about what modernism is or was, or to produce kind of rebranded micro-modernisms in a way (laughs) that I think is not so helpful. So it was, in a way, I suppose you could see it as a way of kind of fudging the modernism question. (laughs) But I also think it works as a description of what has been happening in modernist studies, which is, I, I think that a lot of us working in the field are less and less interested in in sort of answering that question, but is it modernist? Right. And only working on things that uh, that somehow qualify as modernist. And instead, maybe our gaze at that term has softened somewhat to the point where modernism is more and more the name for a, a, a sort of field or array of conversations rather than, again, a kind of container with a binary mm-hmm. switch at the entrance. <laughs> and And this is useful in general for for us in the field but also it's nice in the book because it allows you to talk about say like hillary jenkinson's book on archives which is not even fiction um mm-hmm. you know and, and doesn't really seek to be modernist in the sense that we mean it and yet right <laughs> all these works have this interesting kind of work with temporality that you're able to uncover because of this yeah so moving on to the kind of the first section or or really i suppose it's kind of the first half of the book right yeah. so on the partiality of total war so as you point out, in the early 20th century, surrounding World War One, especially in the war years, etc., you write, now, even pre- and post-war periods will be belligerent. 
right? <laughs> <laughs> Depending on where you're looking. The front is now anywhere futurity is attuned to imminent military force, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's no longer a defined um, front exclusively during wartime, but also the psychological pain of an- anticipating violence. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of your striking formulations is that the book is also about what's excluded from the discourse of total war. So in other words, people maybe think of modernism, teach modernism as coinciding with total war. But as you point out, warfare itself has often been been total, maybe in different ways than before aerial bombardment. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you think of the sacking of a city, the sacking of a city is the sacking of a city, regardless exactly. of when it happens, right? But the perhaps the difference in the 20th century you propose is is not total war itself, but rather total war as a concept, mm-hmm. right? And one with many exceptions. Right. Um, how do you see that concept helping clarify things for us in modernism? Total war is really a sort of t- term of art among historians, probably more than among literary and cultural critics, mm-hmm. who nonetheless use it all the time as a sort of shorthand for very violent, highly mobilized, uh, sometimes exterminative 20th century warfare. But um, and, you know, it's, historians are constantly debating what the first total war was or whether a particular war was total or not. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to get into that sort of a debate, but rather to try to historicize that term, which one might have thought had been with us for centuries, but actually is coined as, as far as I've been able to to sort out in 1916. Okay, so right. in the middle of the First World War, Léon Daudet, who was a far-right French editor, journalist, with uh, Action Française, Mm -hmm. coins the term la guerre totale. Initially as a way, actually, of kind of rationalizing the French government's ability to throw out non-nationals during a time of war. But it very quickly gets picked up and turned into a sort of shorthand for a form of warfare that mobilizes every part of a nation-state. And very quickly it becomes by the early 20s, a kind of shorthand for conflict in which there's essentially no distinction between combatants and non-combatants. Right. They're both seen as legitimate targets because non-combatants may not be actually fighting at the front, but they are working in factories that are producing armaments or producing food to feed soldiers mm-hmm. or they're um, you know, helping maintain a civilian infrastructure, which is then feeding into the war effort. So there's a sense that a whole nation is, in essence, mobilized and militarized in total war, and therefore the whole nation becomes a legitimate target. Right. And that's where that move from a war of fronts to a war of areas comes from. And, and that move is sort of theorized in um, a lot of 1920s air war theory. Mm-hmm. So military theorists who are talking about really the future of, um, of warfare being predominantly um, war from the air and war in which civilian centers, population centers, cities get bombed first as a way of trying to provoke uh, rebellion among civilians against their own state, right. right? And the idea, in a way, is that you militarize your opponent's civilians by bombing them, turning them into uh, you know, a, a civilian army against their own government right. and forcing a surrender. And without without having to actually conscript or send out any soldiers. So there's almost a kind of inversion of the civilian-soldier distinction. Right. But, so, total war is a sort of theory of war that 
involves the totality of a nation, but my wanting to insist on the partiality of total war mm-hmm. is kind of comes down to two meanings of partiality. One, a, a, something that's partial as opposed to total, meaning that total war never really sort of achieves that limit of totality, right? I mean, you, you never actually mobilize or target every, every single person, space, institution in a nation. Right. Um, even nuclear war doesn't quite do that, although I suppose you could sort of see that as happening downstream in right. something like a nuclear winter. But the other meaning of partiality, and in some ways the more important one for me, is ideological partiality. And that has to do with the fact that when people talked about total war in the interwar period, they were never talking about the violence that was being wrought by imperial nation states on their colonies. Mm-hmm. They only were imagining um, warfare between nation states. Right. And so during quote-unquote peacetime, right, the 1920s and 1930s, the imperial powers are maintaining a pretty constant level of violence against people in colonies and mandates, right, in the the so-called periphery, but not calling it total war and not affording those people any of the protections of the international laws of war. Mm -hmm. And there's a racial dimension to that partiality as well, because there were, you know, kind of competing theories about whether racially marked subjects could tolerate more bombardment than non-racially marked or white subjects. Right, right. And there's the sense that... Part of the appeal was to test how effective is this in case we want to use it in the next war on, say, you know, one of the Western European capitals, right? Right. So the the colonies and protectorates and mandates become, in effect, laboratories for the techniques of Mm -hmm. total war, but they are not recognized as such because there's a whole kind of euphemistic vocabulary for that kind of violence, right? Colonial policing or small wars or whatever. So I'm trying to, in a way, provide a more full and persuasive map of a kind of world system of violence, only part of which is comprehended by this notion of total war, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's that's the gambit there. Okay. And one of the things that struck me is you talk about in the interwar years, while Western European powers are, are using aerial bombardment as a police tactic in their colonies, they're also meeting to determine whether or not aerial bombardment of cities would be allowed in any future wars, right? right? And that this whole idea of colonial policing was a kind of sticking point yeah. because maybe they would they would agree like, okay, sure, let's not have any bombing of our cities, but we want an exclusion in there so that we can still use it for policing and that, that broke things down. Is that your... Exactly. I mean, the British in the... Um, I think it's 1932 or 33, there are uh, talks about international laws of war and there's an attempt to develop very strict legal interdictions against bombing population mm-hmm. centers in, you know, quote-unquote total war, in, in war between European right. states, that right. is to say, in, in essence. And, but the Brits wanted to um, build in a kind of loophole that would permit them to continue bombing civilian populations in their colonies, right? right? right. So you could hardly hope for a more naked statement of the double standard. Right. Um, that's being applied here, right? Sort of, um, let us not be bombed, mm-hmm. and yet let us bomb. Right, 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 right. Which is maybe something that runs through the 20th century, but it wasn't always quite so baldly <laughs> stated, right? Yeah. Okay. So one of the stories that you unpack in relation to this is the surprising and twisted tale of L.E.O. Charlton. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so 
and I think this is this is the case with Ulysses too. But like you know, oftentimes we think about literary works might represent the war, even if they do so quite obliquely. So I mean, Mrs. Dalloway, we might think of in relation to World War One, but it's but it's it's oblique in the sense that Clarissa tells herself the war is over, thank God it's over. But you right. know, of course, then we have to say, well, why does she have to insist <laughs> to herself that it's over if if it felt over, right? But the same thing with Ulysses. So Ulysses, we know, was written during the war. I mean, it forced Joyce to relocate while he was writing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it's set in 1904. So if if it does comment on the war, it would have to be a kind of obliquely, right? Yeah. So we might think of literary works as representing the war. But interestingly, Charlton, who's, he works for the Air Force, but he's also interested in, the, in new literature, right? So he reads Ulysses precisely when he's trying to consider the parameters of, 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 air, of aerial warfare. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just one of these crazy little linkages that, you know, when you stumble on, you kind of can't believe it's there. It's, it's as if you kind of dreamed it yourself yeah. and <laughs> your unconscious, like, put it on the page of some <laughs> But yeah, I got interested in Charlton because he is sometimes referred to, even in people who are, are writing about and thinking about contemporary conflicts, okay. as you know, one of the few conscientious objectors within the sort of air power elite during the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is he's assigned to Iraq in late 1922. It was called Mesopotamia then, but it it had just become a British mandate as a result of the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Um, And the RAF is being sent to uh, Mesopotamia to try to do what would have taken many garrisons and much more money than you need to send a few squadrons there to do, which is to sort of, you know, police the colony. And the RAF is saying, well, we'll do this for, you know, a third of the price (laughs) and, um, you know, very few boots on the ground. So Charlton is sent to be a part of that effort, and he takes with him Proust's Recherche, um, at least what had been published of it at that Mm -hmm. point, um, because Proust had just died. And he takes Ulysses, and he describes it as uh, an official guidebook to the region. Right. Uh, Which is a kind of insane intuition, (laughs) you know, on the part of an RAF officer that this book set in Dublin in 1904 might have something to say to Mesopotamia in 1922. But, you know, if you then read Ulysses with that strange sort of star hanging over the bow, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you you begin to see what he means, because Ulysses, although, as you're saying, it's set in 1904, really bears the marks not only of Joyce's youth spent in Ireland, but of the wartime years um, of the book's writing, and of his awareness of the kind of escalating violence happening um, back home in Dublin, mm-hmm both in Easter 1916 and the kinds of legal violence by which colonial subjects were deprived of habeas corpus and due process Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And uh, there are parts of Ulysses that really are registering that, what I've been calling a double standard, right, between the kinds of violence that are permitted during uh, and permitted and interdicted in metropolitan spaces, right, right, in sort of the, the major European capitals. And the types of violence that are permitted and interdicted in colonial spaces, of which Dublin was one. Mm-hmm. And especially the Circe episode, for listeners who know Ulysses, right. you know, the, the, one of the central events in that episode is an act of violence between um, a British soldier and an Irish civilian. Um, but 
the sort of hallucinatory stuff that's going around, going on in the margins of that are all about international laws of warfare and right. amity lines and um, colonial states of exception. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically what I do is kind of engage in a Charltonian reading <laughs> of Ulysses, <laughs> you know, <laughs> having had that tip from um, the memoir of an airman who asked to be um, released from his post because he saw some of the civilian bombing victims of right. that colonial policing practice of the RAFs protested it to his superior and then said, you know, I can't be a part of this anymore. And was basically kind of channeled out of the air force. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You know, he, he's, he's interesting for all sorts of reasons. He's socialist. He's a Freudian. He's gay. He's Mm -hmm. reading avant-garde literature. He's a member of the Forster circle. Um, And he writes these two volumes of memoirs um, in the thirties in the third person, referring to himself in the third person. (laughs) But he also goes on to write a series of boys adventure stories and, and um, justifications for the bombing of civilians in wartime, which are very hard to square with this conscientious objection. Right. Right. So so in trying to like make sense of the relationship between those two moments in his career, I try to produce a kind of map of the contradictions on which the, what I'm calling this sort of world system of violence production is. Right, right, right. So let, let's unpack that for a second. So at first we read of, of Charlton reading Ulysses heading, heading out to Mesopotamia and being horrified by the indiscriminate killing of civilians. And this, yeah. is, this is explicitly what he protests against. But as you point out, he says, especially because it's not wartime, and it's not officially an, a revolt or something like that, right? <laughs> it's because of those conditions that it's so objectionable. But later, when he's back in London, he continues to write books about air war. And he says, during wartime, certainly killing of civilians is, is okay, and, and, is, and he actually advocates for it, right? Yeah. So, and this is why you say he's an exemplary figure? Yeah, in two senses, right? I right. Mean, in the sense that he's he stands apart um, in the way that an example can from mm-hmm. from a, from a set from a lot of his contemporaries and having protested the bombing of civilians in quote unquote peacetime, right. and yet he sort of stands for his contemporaries in accepting the inevitability and even the desirability of of bombing civilians in wartime. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to know exactly why he takes those two positions in part because they're separated in time. He takes the position that you know, the right civilians will have to be killed in war, right? I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to say. Not right. just civilians, but the right ones, right. the most visible ones, the ones who matter, will will need to be killed in, in declared war. He takes that position after he has been channeled out of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And one way to understand would be as a, as a way of trying to kind of write his way back into that confraternity of airmen. But I think another way to understand it is just that, that he... He took very seriously that legal distinction between peacetime and declared war mm-hmm. and you know thought that it was sort of not playing by the rules to bomb civilians in peacetime, whereas in a state of declared war it was playing by the rules, right? There is a little bit of a jolly hockey sticks public school, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do things by the book. Yeah, yeah, play by the rules. Yeah, kind sure. of attitude yeah. there. And of course, the the problem with that is that international laws of war typically stop functioning the moment they're necessary, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, to insist that there is some absolute distinction between wartime and peacetime, right. or between declared and undeclared wars, is maybe idealistic, very possibly naive, given you know the historical record. Mm-hmm. 
So that's one of the one of the ways in which I think he embodies some of the contradictions that he he shares with some of his contemporaries, even as he embodies a kind of refusal of some of the views shared by his contemporaries. He's right. a he's he's a um, he's a fascinating figure for that reason, and and useful for me because if you're trying to like tell the story of these ab- kind of big abstract terms like total war, it's hard to keep a reader's attention. Um, over you know a twenty thousand word chapter, right. if you don't have you know a figure, so, you can sort of follow through that landscape. Yeah, and so just from a kind of practical standpoint, he he, he was helpful for me, mm-hmm. and he was a figure that I could follow through that landscape too. Right, right. No, it it, it fascinated me because on the one hand, he he seems heroic at first for for protesting, but actually he ends up being even more interesting precisely of what was inconceivable to him right which is which is it was completely inconceivable that no one would ever get bombed right like that wasn't even really right. up for consideration yeah in a second we'll we'll turn to um the second half of the book and this decoupling of epic from encyclopedic <laughs> modernism which i love but before we do that i wanted to see if you wanted to return to um, virginia wolf for a second so sure. your reading of of wolf is so powerful partly because you you pick up this strand of total war throughout her different works, right? So it's not just her late work mm-hmm. that deals with it, but even The Mark on the Wall, which is an early short story of hers, right? Right, yeah, written during the First World War. Yeah. So if if Charlton gives us one view of the partiality of total war, then what, what does Wolf bring to the table that would be different? And Yeah, I mean, she... I think she is not as cognizant of the relationship between metropolitan and and colonial violence, although there are some traces of that in the work. But I think what she she brings so much to this discussion, um, I think one of the most important things for me is a way of thinking about the relationship between fictional form and suspenseful geopolitics, right? We were talking earlier about the capacity of a a raid or a war that may arrive to wound. And what that amounts to is a is a kind of geopolitical condition of suspense, suspensefulness, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is this is this the raid that will level the city? Right. Is that sound a backfiring car or a bomber? Mm-hmm. Um, is this war the war to end all wars, or is it the war to end all civilization? Right. And we don't usually think about Wolf as having much to do with suspense at all, right? In the, in the sense of <laughs> right, fictional right. suspense, right? Like, <laughs> we turned to Wolf to get away from these over-dramatic exactly. plots, right? <laughs> yeah, and she was not interested in plot at all. She felt it was a kind of procrustean bed she didn't <laughs> want to lie down in. And yet I think her work is, is really finely attuned to the emerging geopolitics of suspense that uh, had everything to do with the way that civilians were now living in cities that were more and more considered to be legitimate targets. And her diaries and her fictional work are wrestling with this problem really from the First World War to the very end of her career. Mm-hmm. And through the through the interwar period, um, Mrs. Dalloway is sort of where it all started for me because of that scene that you've already alluded to. Right, right. Right, when the crowd is sort of gathered. It's The novel's set in 1923. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. June 1923, published in 1925. And the crowd are watching a skywriting plane and trying to read the smoke letters it's producing. And 
a lot of folks have said, well, that's, you know, it's, it's the roaring twenties, it's advertising, it's right. hopeful modernity, right. but it's also clear that that the, the city she's writing about is still very much vibrating from the first world war. Mm-hmm. And in a way, the major arc of that book is to show how an elite member of the civilian populace, Clarissa Dalloway, right? A member of parliament's wife right. and uh, a great war veteran, Septimus Smith, although they never meet are still implicated in one of the, one another's lives profoundly. And I take that to be Wolf's way of trying to show us in fiction how 20th century warfare is um, collapsing the distance between the civilian and the soldier. Right, right. And she's doing that not by asserting it baldly the way I've just done, mm-hmm. but by building it into the sort of mobile structure of that novel, right? right. So that when Septimus, you know, refuses a certain kind of medical care way over here in the novel, you know, a hundred pages later, that news will produce a really profound change in the life of this woman who never meets him and only hears of his suicide sort of third hand. Right. And there are other ways in which her work is getting to grips with that, what I'm calling the collapsing distance between the civilian and the soldier, and also with that sort of the mounting geopolitical suspensefulness mm-hmm. that is building over the course of the interwar period through, you know, um, Spanish Civil War and then into into the, the opening years of the, the war itself and, and the blitz that she sees happening from outside London. Lots more to be said there, but maybe right. I should tie it off well yeah let's use this as a invitation to to listeners to uh pick up <laughs> tense future and, and and follow it follow it through it's it's a bit difficult to reconstruct quickly here but it's it's a great reading that dips into her text throughout her career to trace this these ideas mm-hmm. so as promised maybe we'll switch to the second half more or less of the book which is the idea of encyclopedic form, which I love because before I had thought of it as one of a number of ways in which certain modernist works were calling attention to themselves as modern epics, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you argue that we should decouple encyclopedic form from the modern epic, right? So in other words, sure, you know, epics traditionally include lists. So there's the list of ships in the Iliad, for example, right? Yeah. And and certainly you can find lists in Joyce's Ulysses, for example. Like the, my favorite one is the one in Cyclops that I think you um, mentioned too, <laughs> that enumerates all of these improbable Irish heroes, including Napoleon, <laughs> Lady Godiva. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that list can really take off because because he's he's writing that precisely when it fi- when he finds out right that it's no longer going to be serialized. So yes. all of a sudden he has all this time to <laughs> make it absurdly long and everything yeah. else. But catalogs or lists are not the same thing as encyclopedic form, right? Mm-hmm. Though they're often conflated. So you describe encyclopedic modernism as a presumptively shattered totality in contrast to the kindred holisms of epic and total war. <laughs> so first, what's special or unique about encyclopedic form? Why do we need to decouple it from modern epic? Yeah. Well, Hegel writing about epic says that war is the sort of primary occasion for epic. And if you think about classical epic, that tends to be true, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you think about both the Iliad and the Odyssey, it is war and its aftermath that set in motion the events of both of those stories. And that in a sense make epic both possible and necessary, Mm -hmm. right? When you have this massive mobilization of the Greek forces to go and go to war against Troy, it provides an occasion for a description of a world, one of whose forms 
is that is the inventory, the epic inventory. Mm-hmm. Another of whose forms in the Iliad is the Shield of Achilles, right? Right, which is this kind of portrait of the world, these two cities, the, the city at peace and the city at war. Mm-hmm. And the received wisdom in 20th century literary studies is that epic by the 20th century is no longer possible because epic belongs to a pre-modern time right. when you know social totalities were small enough that they sort of understood themselves, could represent themselves in a single work, had limits, um, that there was uh, a kind of holism is the word that was used in the passage you just um, read, a kind of holism to epic, which becomes impossible in modernity and especially in later modernity mm-hmm. as um, people become more mobile, right. as identities become more mixed, as the agents and sites of production, right? The, the places um, where the things you use are made right. are suddenly, you know, out of sight and possibly in, on another continent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? So uh, totalities become sort of unrepresentable. And what we're left with is the novel, right? A kind of broken form, <laughs> right. transcendentally homeless. Um, and some of the critics who sort of espouse this break are nostalgic for epic and for that sort of holism of that genre, and others celebrate the polyvocality of the novel as against the sort of monologism, right. monovocality of epic. But I guess what I want to suggest is that epic, far from becoming an obsolete form, and far from being just kind of revived in a handful of modernist works mm-hmm. in the 20th century, actually becomes sort of the master genre of the new world system of total war. Okay. Right? That um, total mobilization, um, uh, the total mobilization of a, of, a, of a nation kind of resuscitates the prospect that you could provide a total portrait of that nation, right? And particularly now that everything is understood to be part of a war effort, everything is consequently understood to be targetable, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's an epic intuition. Right. <laughs> and if you think about the lists in the Iliad, you know, even those lists of ships are, there's, there's something um, homogenous about that list because it all participates in the same logic of right. drawing people from various walks of life into a single purpose, which is mobilization and warfare. Right. And I guess what I like about Joyce's use of inventory is that it's it, it mocks at epic, right? It right. produces it produces a kind of radically, hilariously heterogeneous list mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whose items don't belong together. Right. And in a sense, you could just content yourself with calling that mock epic. But for me, kind of shifting our attention from epic to encyclopedia gives us a different way to read and think about together an array of especially interwar long fictions right, that are right. sort of both massively inclusive and radically heterogeneous, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That is not just mock epic. That is to say, they're not just a kind of ludic version of a totally mobilized form, but they are actually looking for a counter portrait and a, and a counter logic to right. that of total war. And my argument is that they find it in the encyclopedia, which is a form that we t- tend to associate with a kind of you know, homogenous total view of a culture. Right, collecting right. all the world's knowledge in however many volumes. Right, and kind of, you know, like, <laughs> it's this brick, it's, you know, this kind of um, burdensome enlightenment project. Right, right. Very hubristic. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at encyclopedias, 
especially the Encyclopédie of Diderot and d'Alembert, mm-hmm. and then going into the 20th century, the Encyclopédie Britannica, especially the 11th, which was the one that a lot of the writers I'm talking about were most acquainted with. Right, right. These are these are deeply self-divided, mm-hmm. ludicrous, <laughs> incommensurate projects full of conflicting voices. Right, right. There's no um, house style. Deeply incompatible. Yeah, deeply incompatible voices and points of view. Mm-hmm. There's really no house style. I mean, right. if you look at the list of contributors to the 11th Britannica, which <laughs> comes out in 1911, it's, yeah. it's like who's who <laughs> of... Scientists, philosophers, writers, journalists, and they're, they really have not had their writing cooked down to some kind of, you know, flavorless gruel. Mm-hmm. That, that, that encyclopedia is interesting because it is so lively and so turbulent. And the same, I would say, is true of the 18th century French encyclopedia, which mm-hmm. understood itself to be at odds with itself. And, and, you know, Diderot and D'Alembert, when they wrote about their own project, were very clear that this was necessary and it was part of what was um to be cherished about that project right right so the fact that it's organized alphabetically they delighted in because it produces these kind of strange juxtapositions right exactly yeah so there are these conflicting logics of organization you've got Mm -hmm. you know they they conceived of knowledge as arborescent right as belonging to a kind of tree-like structure but it's actually laid out according to the alphabet right so those interference patterns between kind of conflicting um, regimes of organization produce all kinds of strange effects in encyclopedias. Mm-hmm. And I guess ultimately what I most prize about this, about encyclopedism as a kind of formal project is that it, it engages in a kind of imminent critique of, to, of a totalizing representation. Mm-hmm. That is to say, it doesn't believe that all that is known can be represented in a kind of marmorial way right. right it understands that knowledge is always changing and and that an encyclopedia will be will be obsolete before it's published right right and yet it doesn't give up on the project of a total representation and the result i'm arguing in the interwar period is that these encyclopedic works of fiction by kind of absorbing this uh, encyclopedic project are combating total wars attempt to portray everything as a target right, right to right. kind of give us a portrait of everything as connected by dint of being part of a war effort. Mm -hmm. They're combating it simultaneously by showing the impossibility of total representation, but also by not conceding that project to total war and saying, here's a counter model, right? It's restless. It's volatile. Mm -hmm. It's bulbous (laughs) in the same way that an encyclopedia is bulbous. And totality has a kind of a bad word, uh, has become a bad word, right? right? It's got a bad name for itself. (laughs) Because I think people tend to, I don't know, associate it with totalitarianism or with a form of thinking that is not interested in nuance or locality or the partial, the particular, the singular. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think we should give up on the question of totality, right? which is to say the question of trying to understand how seemingly disconnected things are related to one another in ways that are complex and always changing and will probably never submit to being locked down. But I think to just sort of throw your hands up and say the best we can ever do is the partial, the local, is in a way to seed that project of a kind of total portrait of our world to 
to bad totalities. Right, right. <laughs> okay, nice. So, so let's let's assume for a second that that the reader is convinced about Ford Maddox Ford's tetralogy, right? Parades and yeah. yeah, and Ulysses, and and again, one of the things that encyclopedic form I think helps us see with Ulysses is is you know every chapter more or less every episode right and and some and oftentimes with even within episodes has a kind of radically different style right so yeah. so this is something that is i think fits nicer within within an encyclopedia rather than epic right epic doesn't epic might include a couple of different uh, examples of different styles but it, it does have a house style right yeah whereas um ulysses clearly does not it delights on that right right and it and it sounds like to some extent um ford's work does that too by switching back and forth between traditionally realist modes right and then but then also shuttling in and out of in and out of that yeah so so let's say that we we buy this and we're trying to think about how we might expand a little bit so you give us this tantalizing sentence in here somewhere where you say you know to some extent we could read say like the wasteland (laughs) as an example (laughs) of encyclopedic modernism too (laughs) but i'm going to focus on the novel (laughs) so what would have happened if we had thought about the wasteland i mean would would poetry inherently force us to think different things than the, than the novel, or or would it just be another example? Mm. Think? Yeah, that's a great question, and one that I I think I can only provide like a at best a glancing response to. But Eliot's poem is often read as the the order crazed counterpart to Ulysses. Okay. So as you know, Eliot writes a review of Ulysses, um, Ulysses' Order and Myth, in which he claims that the mythical method that he detects in Joyce's novel, the use of the Homeric intertext to kind of organize a book about roughly contemporary, uh, a roughly contemporary moment, has the importance of scientific discovery, everyone will need to use it now, and he, he claims that it imposes order on the immense panorama of anarchy and futility that is contemporary history. Right. And I, I don't think many readers of Ulysses anymore agree that that's an accurate reading of right. the relationship between the Homeric narrative and the contemporary narrative in Ulysses, that the myth is somehow imposing order on an anarchic present. Right. It's, you know, clearly both order and anarchy are flowing in both directions mm-hmm. in ways that are much more complex. But I think it's been, it's been tempting to accept that description of Ulysses by Eliot as an accurate description of his own (laughs) poem, right? (laughs) And uh, The Wasteland famously has endnotes that sort of uh, explain some of the texts that are alluded to or quoted directly in the proper text of the poem. And I think many readers of that poem have sort of accepted that those endnotes are doing a kind of, you know, fulfilling a kind of mythical method function in relation to the poem, imposing order. The order in this case being tradition, right? The, 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 the ideal order, what Elliot elsewhere refers to as the ideal order Mm -hmm. of the great monuments of the past. But I, I, I think that's also a misreading of the wasteland and it may, you know, it may be, faithful to Eliot's, what Eliot understood that poem to be doing, although I'm not sure that's even true. Yeah, it seems to <laughs> me like the notes are kind of a game with the reader, right? Yeah, so how, <laughs> how, how do you see that game playing out in respect to the epic or the mythic or the Well, I mean, one thing that occurred to me because I, I was teaching The Wasteland because simultaneously when I was reading your book, and I was thinking, if in the interwar years, 
people are concerned that it is it is now conceivable and quite possible that the archive could be destroyed right that if there's enough bombing you know massive amounts of books and paper could actually cease to exist then the wasteland takes on this new meaning in this in the in the sense that i think one way people often read all of the references in the wasteland is that elliot was trying to accumulate all this cultural capital and show off to everyone else how much he had read right but it seems equally possible that he was making his own time capsule right like here here are mm-hmm. references to works that that are important and precisely by using him in the wasteland they it they becomes preserved or renewed in our memory or something like that. Huh. Yeah. I mean, you've just provided a kind of reading of that line, these fragments, a different kind of reading of that line, these yeah. fragments I have short against my I room. Read, yeah. Um, in the sense that, you know, the contents of a time capsule can only ever be fragmentary because you can't put the whole archive right. or a whole civilization into a time capsule. But one of the functions of a time capsule is to sort of shore, sh- to shore against ruination, Right. It's a, I mean, it's a pretty strange time capsule. (laughs) (laughs) This is what one contemporary reviewer said of Ford Maddox Ford's Parades End, right? That, or at least of the first volume, I think it was, that um, that it's a time capsule of you know everything that matters about contemporary Britain, right? And that a a reader from the future could, could could use that book as a kind of time capsule and. If you imagine trying to reconstitute Western civilization out of the wasteland, <laughs> you get a pretty bizarre thing. But that doesn't mean that that that, um, that kind of ambition, right. that's a very melancholic ambition, right. right? Because it understands that process of shoring to be always already ruined and fragmentary, right? But nonetheless, an ambition. Well, I mean, to return to the notes for a second, I mean, yeah. the, the thing about the notes is, you know, maybe to some extent it's Elliot playing with his readers. It, it kind of half explains things because it does give you the Grail Quest narrative. In other words, it's the right. Wasteland's way of signaling this is the Wasteland's equivalent of the Odyssey, you know, for, for Joyce. One of the things Diderot says about the Encyclopédie in the 18th century is that if we had an encyclopedia of antiquity, mm-hmm. you know, if the, if the ancient Greeks had trouble to make one, and it had survived, it could console us for the loss of the Library of Alexandria. Right. And you are suggesting, I think persuasively, that there's something of that logic in the wasteland too, right? That the poem itself is sort of like the fragmentary remains of a destroyed library. And there's something about those notes that seems like, uh, it's almost like the... um, the card catalog right. to that library, <laughs> you know, to, to the to the missing to the vanished library, right, right. and it's at one and the same time a promise of a kind of ideal order of monuments, you know, which if you were only able to read all of them would make the fragmentary poem perfectly legible, mm-hmm. but um, but also um, sort of with the recognition that you can never read all of that archive either because there's too much of it or because there's none of it, right, right. right depending on the state of things. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was was your process. So again, Eric Hayo cites you as as one of the people who gets him excited about academic writing, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very generous moment. (laughs) So so you're both inspiration and model. Um, And he points to a, a metaphor you employ in the edited collection of, of the beehive and, and he shows how it w- works through this paragraph that you're writing in that introduction. 
you know, the, the, the sorts of similes that I respond to in others' writing are the ones that kind of yoke together by surprise and maybe even a little bit of rhetorical violence, mm-hmm. otherwise unlike things, right. so that the memory can kind of latch on to a particle of strangeness right. in that like or as, right? right? Okay. Or, in the, or in the metaphorical um, link. So I guess sometimes I try to do that um, when I'm when when there's a risk of it just becoming otherwise a kind of bland, overly familiar figure. Okay, so you save them or for scheme. key moments. Yeah, I mean I, I, that sounds more deliberate than it probably <laughs> is. <laughs> it may also have had to do with the time of day and the amount of caffeine that happened to be in my bloodstream at that particular moment. Well, I, you know, I, I won't I won't kill you with too many of these, but but one that struck me is perhaps because I know that you're a musician, maybe maybe I just picked up on the the way that's been fused in the book in, in gen- generally subtle ways. But we already covered the bouncer versus the uh, <laughs> versus the host. But um, here, perhaps we're in a different space with like an organ player, right? So you say in three guineas, the words "air raid precaution" writ large on blank walls are a dreadful pedal point atop which the essay's fugal argument develops right? <laughs> and so so in in music a pedal point is is a sustained bass note and it's called pedal point right because an, an organist could play it with their feet right. right and and it's um it's part of the key of the song but it's um the melody that they're playing at that moment is not in sync with it right and it's also it's often the dominant right which is to say the five right, so you okay. sit on the five while all sorts of you know development and inversion and elaboration and, uh, is happening in the upper parts, and then and finally you return to the one, right? So it is there, there's often something suspenseful about a pedal point, okay. right? Where you're you're kind of like holding open and insisting on the openness, uh, inconclusivity of right. the kind of musical uh, state okay. before you finally return it to its equilibrium. Yeah, I mean, I think. Sometimes those little gambits of mine, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if it's a reader who knows what a pedal point is, there's maybe a, a, a you know, some enjoyment or a flash of appreciation. Right. I think it also ticks people off <laughs> if they don't know it and I don't know. feel like I'm being fancy for the sake of being fancy. I guess I like it when academic writing veers a little out of its central channels to address a reader or a subset of its readers Mm -hmm. um, for a moment um, directly. Right. right. Which is kind of what a vocabulary, like, you know, what what a kind of specialized vocabulary can do. Right. Or, you know, the sorts of some of the figures we've been talking about. But it's always a risk. I mean, you know, I, I definitely get berated by... (laughs) <laughs> usually by friends who are annoyed at, at some of the you know this just kind of oddities that crop up in, in but yeah but i mean you know that's what it does force the reader to slow down and, and take it in but i think it's ultimately one of the things that makes your your writing memorable you know the the fact that you had to kind of slow down and, and digest this new image but then you all of a sudden you understand the paragraph in a new way so at least, at least for me, it's one of the things I like best. And I think, I think Eric says something like, he might even be borrowing it from you, but he says something like, it's a way of ventilating your writing, like trying to mix different discourses together, right? Yeah, that's that's a word that I actually learned to apply to prose um, from Mark Walliger, who was my teacher okay. when I was an undergraduate. Um, he was always talking about 
energies that might ventilate an otherwise kind of a hothouse atmosphere, <laughs> whether it's an intellectual one or an aesthetic one. Right. Yeah, I think we have to sometimes throw the windows open and and have cross currents. Right, right. Although it's also fun to like to slam the doors shut and li- li- really cook everything. In there. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps perhaps in a book on total war and these scary futurities, it probably is helping some people get through it. <laughs> what could well, what could quickly turn into a bleak experience, right? Yeah, I mean that's that, and that is a risk when you're writing about a subject that feels very heavy right. and when you're writing about when you not only feel yourself sometimes a sense of hopelessness but you're actually writing about the history of hopelessness mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and um the writing of uh historical actors who felt hopeless or felt that the future was a foregone conclusion you know you can really you can run into a danger of just like not not wanting to to continue to work on the project yourself, mm-hmm. much less be able to expect a reader to follow you. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I prize about the encyclopedia as a form, and as a form that probably found its way in some ways into my own writing, right? The, the kind of radical heterogeneity, I guess that might be one way to think about these weird little vocabularies right, right, okay. that crisscross the work. That sometimes just a rhetorical or figural energy or shift right can be a kind of hopefulness of its own right without saying so right right. (laughs) Uh, insofar as any act of linguistic innovation or application of rhetorical torque to something is sort of perforce in the direction of a of an imagined future Mm -hmm. act of reading right so yeah maybe that's one of the primary places actually where hope is kind of stashed in this project is in both in, in, um, in the, those little sort of micro shifts in the microclimate, mm-hmm. right. Of the writing that I'm discussing. And then sometimes in my own right. Well, it certainly helped propel me through it. I mean, I was excited to, to read it anyways, but I also enjoyed slowing down and savoring some of the, some of the moments. So it, well, that's, a, nice. that's a relief to me here. <laughs> So that's all I have for you. I mean, thank you so much for um, for joining us here on the New Books Network. Pleasure. And I'm um, looking forward to the next book, and hopefully it won't take as long. I mean, on the one hand, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that these kinds of well-thought-out, very carefully constructed books exist, and this is to some extent the pleasure of reading your, your work. But at the same time, you know, we're hungry for more of it. So <laughs> I think I'll just, you know go downstairs and just jot out a pamphlet size <laughs> thing and put it straight out. Uh, well, thanks for saying so. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to work more quickly. 